Well, it's great to be back with you again this Sunday and I extend my welcome to you as Matt has to those who have been watching online, but a special welcome too for those who might be listening to us on 98.5 The Light FM. It's good to know that you're connecting in with our services and it's our pleasure to be able to bring these services to you. I guess one of the things that I would say, just reflecting on the times that we are in, is that the first week doing church online, sitting perhaps in your pyjamas and watching what's been going on here, was a little bit of fun, a little novel, a little exciting. And as time goes by, we realise that there is much lost in not being able to gather together. Nevertheless, we look forward to being able to do that in the future at some stage. For now, however, it is a blessing to be able to be uh, connecting as we do in different ways, either online or through the radio or in other ways, uh, remembering that we are God's people no matter where we might be scattered. So welcome to you to our service this morning. Today we're going to change gears a little bit for the past couple of months. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to jump out of Mark and we're going to start a series from the Gospel of Acts. And so I invite you, if you've got a Bible, whether it's an electronic Bible or a, a, a written version there, to look up with me, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. We're going to read that passage, then I'll pray briefly and ask God's blessing upon us as we unpack a little bit from that. And then over these next few months, we'll continue to look at what God might be saying to us as we think about the mission that God has called the church onto. Our reading, though, is from Acts chapter 1, verses, uh, ch chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but within a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked a question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going when suddenly he was taken before their eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. And two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we spend some time in his word. Father, we thank you that you continue to speak. Your Holy Spirit is with us. We believe that. We have experienced that and we invite you by your spirit to speak into the hearts of all those who today will be exposed to your word, whether through uh, the service that we're presenting or 
in any other context in our city, across our nation, across the globe. We thank you for your word. It's enduring, it's powerful, it's instructive, it's life-giving. And we uh, trust you to bring that to us too and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you'd just take a few moments to think with me about what is the most amazing thing that you've ever seen. What is the most incredible sight you've seen? What is the most stunning piece of scenery or amazing thing that has been your joy to witness? If we were doing this as a seminar, I might say to you right now, pause the video just for a moment and think about that and talk about that. You might like to do that too. But I think about that question myself, a couple of things come to mind. For example, back in 1983, while I was in Melbourne, I happened to be in a building that overlooked the city out to the west when an enormous dust storm came rolling in over the city. It was a blinder of a dust storm that just rolled, churned its way across the city skyline. A young guy who was with me at the time said, David, what is that? And fortunately, I'd had enough experience out in the country to know that basically it was the country coming to the city. It's a sight that I've never forgotten. I've been blessed to be able to go to places like Angkor Wat and have a look at the temple there and just be staggered by the immensity and the grandeur and the enormity of the temple complex that is not just the one that most people would picture, but a number that are built through that whole area. I was out uh, many years ago with my brother one night uh, on what we might call a, a, a feral eradication program. We were out shooting some rabbits totally unsuccessfully on this particular night. And so we said to one another, what are we going to do? We, let's go to the Rosedale tip and set up some cans and, uh, and waste some ammo there. And so that's what we did. And as I got out of the car this particular night at the Rosedale tip, I looked at the sky and the sky late at night was like a sky I've never seen before, totally coloured with the most amazing of rainbow colours, red and blue and green, and the stars that were clear and shining there were flecked with colour. There were bands of light through the sky. It was the southern aurora, the southern lights, very unusual to be found at such uh, latitudes. But I looked at the sky and it's a, again an image that has stayed with me forever and ever. In fact, on that night, uh, because this was a time that predated mobile phones, I grabbed my brother and said, let's go. We drove home to Hayfield uh, in time to say to Diana and, and his wife, come out and have a look at this, by which time it was gone, unfortunately. But it was a sight that I've always remembered. Some things that we see we do remember. There are, of course, other things that change our lives. I've been witness to two and a half births of my children. I missed half of one and there's a story there that I won't tell you right now. But there are some things that we see that change our lives. And as we come to the passage here from Acts today, we're mindful that the disciples had witnessed an event, the ascension of Christ, that must have been one of the most staggering of the events that they'd ever seen. And yes, it's reported here by Luke, the historian Luke, who wrote this book, in a very understated manner. He just sums up what happened. He just says, basically, in, in as few words as this, that as they were standing there, Jesus was taken up before their eyes, a cloud hid him from their sight, and that they were looking intently where he was going. 
I wonder what impression that made upon them, though, whether they remembered it forevermore. And it's very curious, isn't it, that Luke reports it in such an understated manner? Why doesn't he explain it more? I mean, this is a a life-changing, earth-shattering event. In fact, it's one of the most significant events in the New Testament. And I say that because in some senses, it's a marker of a significant change. If you think about the Old Testament to the New Testament, Jesus is the marker of change there. The Old Testament, of course, speaks about the work that God was doing in preparation for the coming of Christ, his relationship with a rebellious people. And Jesus is the hinge upon which history hinges, if you like, and the story of the New Testament is about Jesus. But if we take the New Testament, this event, this ascension of Jesus Christ described here in Acts for us, is in some ways the story of the gospel separated from the story that continues, the story of Jesus with his disciples in person and now the story of the spirit of Jesus with the disciples as they engage with the church. It's a a shift from one to the other. And this book of Acts that we're going to spend some time studying over these next few months is the story of the church on mission. And that's the lens that we're going to look through as we unpack this book with you, the story of God's church on mission. And it's good that we do that just at the moment too because uh, we're engaged with those same questions. In fact, uh, the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to go into all the world making disciples is our commission too. We have to think about what does it mean to engage with God's mission. And at risk of um, picking up a theme that we've talked about before in these days when we're unable to meet in the manner that we're accustomed to and we can't do church in the manner that we're accustomed to, we've got to ask the question, how is God's call to mission, which is unchanging, to be worked out with methods that are constantly changing? That's a question that the church has always had to wrestle with. Another reason it's good for us to spend some time looking at the book of Acts right now is because in those days, the disciples, the apostles, the gathered Christians were working out what does it actually mean to be the church? What does a church look like? And that too was a question that Christians through the ages have had to wrestle with. Christians in countries where there's been persecution for example, have had to ask the question, what does it look like to be the church? Christians in countries where the government has essentially wrapped itself around the church, where the church and state have become one, have had to ask the question, what does it actually mean to be genuine, fully sold out followers of Christ in a context where our society has has made it theirs? And that's not an easy question to wrestle with. Uh, It's good for us to ask the question, what does it mean to be the church? And third and perhaps most importantly, it's good for us to study this book because the book of Acts describes the age of the Spirit, the age of the activity of the Spirit of God. This book talks about an exciting time in the life of the church when Jesus gave his Spirit to empower the Christians for their witness in the world and there are some amazing things that are reported through this book, some interesting stories that we will unpack that demonstrate the work and the power of the Spirit of God. And it's good for us to root ourselves in those things too because we live in that same age. 
The age of the Spirit continues to this day and God has given his Spirit to us too to engage in that mission in the world. But let's start our journey through this book with a couple of observations. And the first one uh, from uh, where we probably should start, uh, and that is authorship. Because to be honest with you, through the history of the church, there have been many people who have questioned the authorship of this book. We are going to make an assumption that it was written by Luke, the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's written in his introduction to his friend Theophilus and we are making an assumption too as we come to this book that Luke, the historian who has been demonstrated to be an historian of some note and some accuracy, is in fact the author. And so what we read here, we're going to trust, we're going to take on face value and not try and second guess as has been the case sometimes through history. In fact, I want to say to you that uh, fairly recently, in just the last few decades even, there have been a number of archaeological discoveries made that confirm the veracity or the truthfulness of Luke's story in terms of the names, the places and the times. And so as we unpack this, we're not unpacking a fairy story, we're not unpacking a legend, we're not unpacking someone's narrative, we're unpacking some events that actually happened and it's good to remember that as we come to the text. From the start of this uh, passage though, uh, Luke tells us that as Jesus returned to be amongst his disciples, he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's a really interesting statement, isn't it? It's a shame, in a way, that Luke doesn't enlarge on that, that Luke doesn't expand or describe what those convincing proofs were. It would be fine to know. It would be kind of nice to know what they were. I've always thought it would have been nice to see some of the miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, as a young person, I used to think... it. If only we could do something that would impress people enough to make them Christians. But you know what? As you read through the Gospels, even Jesus recognised that the miraculous, that events that may have been impressive were not enough to engender faith. Amazing events were not enough to bring people to a change of heart. And so no matter how convincing the proofs may have been, no matter how impressive those things may have been, they didn't necessarily lead to a change of hearts. And I kind of think that's why Luke didn't spend a lot of time talking about what those convincing proofs were, convincing that they may have been, because Luke recognised that they were not going to be the things that would actually bring about true faith. And in fact, if I could just offer this to you as an observation, it would be true to say that faith that requires a kind of an adrenaline hit of the miraculous or spectacular or outrageous, you know, miracles and signs and wonders, that kind of faith's not actually biblical faith. That kind of faith is built on very flaky kind of ground. God wants to drive deeper into our hearts and teach us to learn to trust him and to have a faith that believes even when we don't necessarily see. And so for that reason, I think Luke has been very light in terms of telling us what those convincing proofs were. It's interesting to note, though, that Luke tells us that those convincing proofs were given over a period of 40 days. 
Now, let's not make too much of this, but 40 is a significant number in the scripture, isn't it? In fact, it's used around about 146 times in different contexts. For instance, um, back in the days of Noah, you'd be familiar with, uh, with the rains that came for 40 days and 40 nights. There was um, 40 represented in Jesus' own life. 40 days after he was born, he was presented at the temple, typical of a Jewish child. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. He was out there with the wild animals, Mark told us. And so it's appropriate in a way that he appeared to his disciples for 40 days with those convincing proofs. We're also told by Luke in this passage that during this time, he spoke to them extensively about the kingdom of God. Now that should ring a bell because just uh, before our series in Acts, we've been working our way through Mark, which was all about the kingdom. And Jesus now in, in this time is speaking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. We've been talking uh, over these last few months about the coming king, Jesus Christ, the ruler of this kingdom, this kingdom of God, which is, of course, the reign in people's hearts. And we might also assume from the text that we read a few moments ago that Jesus spoke to them about the spirit and the activity of the spirit of God. And to some extent, this shouldn't have been a surprise to them because if they knew their Old Testament, and we can safely assume that they would have, we would know that the disciples that he was with would have known that through the Old Testament period, God gave signs. He actually spoke quite clearly that when the Messianic age began, when the time of the Messiah came, there would be an outpouring of his spirit. There would be activity of his spirit. Take Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. For example, in Isaiah 44, verse 3, God said, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. There's this idea through the Old Testament of an outpouring of God's spirit through this time, through this what we call the messianic age, the age of the Messiah, the age of Christ. And one of the blessings and, in fact, one of the signs of this kingdom rule, this kingdom that Jesus has come to rule, is, according to the New Testament and the Old Testament together, a pouring out of God's Spirit. And that kind of makes the questions or the question that the apostles ask in verse 6 a rather interesting one. Just have a look at what they ask there. And it says, when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, that sounds on the surface a question that, you know, we might skip over. But it actually, if you look at the grammar of that question, raises some really interesting questions. Because the way they frame that question leads us to conclude without any doubt whatsoever that this is what they were asking. Are you, Lord, going to establish a territorial kingdom? Are you going to have that here in the nation of Israel and is it going to happen right now? So you can see how that question that they asked is actually quite loaded. Is it going to be a territorial kingdom? Is it going to be limited to the nation of Israel? And is it going to happen right now, as in immediately? And in response, Jesus answered their question in a kind of roundabout way 
but made three points that I think are quite helpful for us and we're just going to take a moment to unpack as we think about our engagement with God's mission. The first one is this, this kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom and there's a big difference between those two. This kingdom that God has come to establish, as I said earlier, is uh, the reign and rule of God in people's hearts, not over a sphere or space of land. And the way that that happens is by the spirit, not by power or force. You see, in human thinking, when you think about kingdoms, people often think about uh, power or force to take land, to establish rule over a particular place. Just uh, the last week I've been doing some reading, recreational reading around the, the historical uh, times before World War II, particularly in the Asia-Pacific area, specifically what brought Japan to the place that it was at when World War II broke out uh, and there was stuff going on in Russia and there was stuff going on in England and America and Australia and Japan and through that whole area that actually brought to this time where those nations broke out and Japan broke out to establish a kingdom in Southeast Asia. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is talking about. The power of the kingdom of God is different to the power of human kingdoms the kingdom of God, as I said, is the rule of God in people's lives. And that's not established by soldiers. That's established by witnesses. And if we go back to that great commission, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, not my soldiers. That's really significant. This kingdom that God establishes is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not established by power. Uh, or Well, it is established by power, the power of the spirit, but not by force and not by soldiers, but by witnesses. The second uh, thing that Jesus pointed out is this, and that is this message of the kingdom that we carry is an international message. It's not a localised message. It's not just for Israel, Jesus said. This message is going to go out to all places, to Judea, to Judea Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and the book of Acts, as we will see when the church is on mission, is, is a book about the scattering of the church to all corners of the world. A record of the Christian mission going to all sorts of places. And it tells us that Jesus Christ rules over an international community, not defined by place, not defined by race, not defined by a nation, not defined by a demographic or a genealogy or anything like that. It's a, a worldwide thing. It encompasses our neighbourhood. It encompasses the world. And I'm really excited that we're part of a church here at Wodonga Baptist that has an eye to God's mission in our neighbourhood, but also God's mission more broadly in the world as well. And we ought to be asking the question always, what does it mean for me to be involved in this neighbourhood work that God is doing in our own place? And how can I be involved in other places? And we have people from our church who are engaged in doing just that. And that is exciting. The third thing Jesus talks about here, which I think is really helpful for us to be mindful of, is that this kingdom expands gradually. It's not an instantaneous uh, kind of a thing. There will be a time uh, 
when Jesus returns, when everything will be wrapped up. But for the moment, this kingdom grows gradually. Jesus' response in verse 7 is curious and informative, for he said to his disciples, it's not for you to know the time or the place or the dates the Father has said according to his authority. But Jesus did say this time that we, were, we are living in right now will be filled by the activity of God's Spirit as that kingdom grows. And as we journey our way through this book of Acts, this book that could be described as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, we will certainly notice the supreme place that the Holy Spirit has in the ministry of the church and the effectiveness of the ministry of the church. It's interesting and not at all insignificant that Jesus did not allow his disciples to leave until they had experienced that infilling of the Spirit, until they'd been equipped by the Spirit, until they were ready to go to do that work. And there's something in that for us too, isn't there? To be mindful that we need to go and whatever we do, we need to go in the Holy Spirit, not racing ahead of the Holy Spirit, not lagging behind the Holy Spirit, but going in the power of the Holy Spirit to have the right tools for the job, so to speak. I know uh, many of you who are listening in today will have normally gone away on holidays over Easter and are probably lamenting the fact that you've not been able to do that. Some people even went and bought new equipment, new, new gear to go, uh, ready to roll out and enjoy this beautiful weather that we've experienced. And it's sad that you haven't been able to do that. I wonder though whether you've ever had this experience, an experience that I've had. You've gone somewhere and when you've turned up, you've just realised you've left something important behind. Like you've gone to put a tent peg in, thought, oh my goodness, I haven't got the hammer. What am I going to use? How many of you have ever used a stone to belt in a tent peg? I've had to do that. How many of you on occasion have gone to get a tent peg and thought, oh my goodness, I've forgotten the tent pegs and so you've had to use a stone as a tent peg? I've had to do that. There's occasions where um, I've had to open a tin of fruit with a cold chisel because I've forgotten to take a tin opener. Uh, and there's other things that I'm sure have happened. You know, there's something in the Australian psyche that says we can, we can fix or manage stuff. You know, I've made tools out of fencing wire uh, to get by, but there's nothing quite like having the right tool for the job. And one of the underlying messages of the book of Acts is this, that the Holy Spirit is, is the tool, it's the Spirit of Christ who comes with us as we do this job that God has called us to do. Only a fool would drive out their driveway knowing that they'd intentionally left the hammer behind when they were going to have to build in tent pegs and only a fool would leave and go out into the world on mission ignoring the in filling in the power of God's Holy Spirit that God willingly and longs to give to us. And one of the great themes that runs through this book of Acts and is of supreme importance to us is that the fullness of the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, is essential for us as we engage in God's mission. There's no substitute for a half measure or partial filling of God's Spirit in our lives for effective ministry. We will see that in uh, the lives of the apostles. We will see what happens when that's appropriated 
inappropriately. Uh, as we unpack the book of Acts, we will see God's desire that we might walk in his ways, uh, walk in his spirit, experiencing that in filling and empowering for his ministry. We will unpack what that means and talk about practically what it looks like to, uh, to do God's work in that strength through this series. So we're in for a real treat. Uh, we're going to be mightily blessed as a church, as a community, wherever you might be through this time. And as we launch into this book, uh, I commend it to you as God's message to us for this very special time. We're going to pray and then uh, wind up with another song after I've prayed. But let me just lead you briefly in prayer. Father, again, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for its preservation through the ages that we might read it and be instructed by it, that we might know what it says, but more, Lord, we would ask that we might know the one who says it. And so our desire is uh, expressed in our prayer that we might know you, Lord, by your spirit in us, living in us, empowering us, uh, represented in everything that we do. We thank you again for our service today. We want to thank you for the blessings there are in Christ and pray this in your name. Amen.